Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. Sorry, Craig, that was my bad. I realized halfway through the music, I didn't tell you to do the children's dismissal. Um, Open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 8. Looking at the Psalms over the summer, just hitting different ones that all cover different topics um, during the summer months. One thing you may not know about me is that I love books. Noted sarcasm there. Um, I love reading books. I love buying books. I love talking about books. I love organizing books. I love displaying books. If you could eat books, I'd probably eat them. Um, Every year, my family gets upset at me that I ask for books for Christmas. That's all I ask for. They ask me, what do you want for Christmas? And I I don't have like a need of a lot of stuff, so I just give them a list of books I'm planning to read and say, have at it. And they always say, all you want is books. And I'm like, that makes me easy to shop for. When I meet another pastor, when I go to their office and chat with them, sometimes I struggle to pay attention to them because I'm like looking at their bookshelves. And I'm thinking, man, they got some cool books. Or, man, this guy needs some books in here. (laughs) The way a lot of men have a man cave where they hang their deer heads and whatever else you hang in a man cave, I, I don't know, but... That's what my library is for me. My office over there is full of books and continuing to add to that. Um, I keep it looking good. I keep it organized. I like to display the books I've read so I can like look back at them. And Most books that you read, it's, it's like a journey that you went through as you read them. And so I can look at all these books and remember back what the Lord did in me as I read that book. Um, one way you can decorate a library is to use something called bookends. I thought about putting some bookends out here so that I didn't have to explain what they are in case you don't know, but essentially heavy items that you put on two sides of books so they can stand without needing the wall of a bookshelf. Um, I don't know if every book connoisseur does this, but I do. I I don't put random books in between bookends. The things in between a bookend are um, that they go together. The books go together that are between two bookends. They may be a set. They may all be about a certain topic, um, whatever. Um, the, the things in between the bookend are all meant to be together and meant to be a set. And in that same way, Psalm chapter 8 has bookends on it. It begins with the same sentence and it ends with the same sentence like a bookend. So if that's the case, that means that everything that comes in between those two bookends is meant to flesh out what that sentence is saying. And so the, the sentence is, O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, if you were going to ask, how is the Lord's name majestic in all the earth, what might you think to yourself? 
perhaps you would think about creation, and you would think that the Lord's name is majestic in all the earth through um, the mountains and the trees and the oceans and all of those wonderful things. Um, Psalm 8 is going to actually say the exact opposite, that God's glory is most seen not in creation, but in human beings, in human beings. So let's read Psalm chapter 8 and find out what it says about human beings. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You and I are so small, and we're just so small. Someday I'd like to go visit the Redwood Forest in California and just stand next to those massive trees out there um, and, and just see how small I am compared to one of those trees. But the fact is the Redwoods in California are nothing compared to the moon, and the moon is nothing compared to the planet Mercury, and the planet Mercury is nothing compared to our sun, and the sun is nothing compared to the biggest star in the universe, Canis Majoris, um, which is in radius is 1,420 times bigger than our sun. And Canis Majoris is nothing compared to the entire Milky Way galaxy that it abides in. And the Milky Way that we live in is just one of two trillion galaxies that exist in the known universe. And somewhere within that vast expanse, you and I exist not even the size of a grain of sand. We are so small. We live on a little blue dot in the middle of a massively huge universe. But God loves small things. He loves small things. Psalm 8 talks about God's glory being above the heavens. You see it in verse 1. You have set your glory above the heavens. Um, it's above the heavens. It's farther up there. The sky and space, it's above that. So everything below that reflects his glory. And David thinks the same thing you and I would when we're faced with how small we are. Verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your finger, I mean, you, you put each one of those stars up there, each one, you put the moon up there, you've set them all in place. I see all of this stuff, and what in the world is man? Why would you ever be mindful of someone as small as me? Why would you ever be mindful of me when there are two trillion galaxies out there far bigger than anything I have ever imagined? Why would you care about me? But God does. God does. God is mindful of mankind. God cares for mankind. Why does he do such a thing? Verse 2, because he loves using small things to do incredible things. 
He loves using the mouth of babies and infants to still the enemy and the avenger. He does that kind of thing. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, famous passage you'll know. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. God loves using weakness to show his strength. He loves to do that. Man doesn't do this, though. We look at the powerful people. We look to them. We aspire to be rich and powerful people. We, our, our heroes are the athletes and the politicians and the celebrities. You even see this in the Christian world. It's the stereotypical thing for ministers my age, um, that, that guys my age come out of seminary with big ministry ambitions. I'm going to be the next John MacArthur or the next Al Mohler or the next Matt Chandler or whatever famous preacher you like. I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to have the big church and everybody's going to want to come hear me preach. I'm going to be writing all the books and speaking at all the conferences. When the, when the broadcast news needs a Christian perspective on something, they're going to call me. So they may go to a church like ours and be there for a few years, get some experience on their resume, and then take a job at a little bit bigger church. Maybe as a supporting staff, as the, um, I don't know, the, the associate pastor, the um, a, administrative pastor, I don't know, whatever. Um, and they'll work there for a few years. And then they'll move up to an even bigger church. And their goal this time is to be a big-time pastor at a giant church so everyone will know that they are something. It drives me crazy. That's definitely a stereotype. Don't assume every young minister is like that, or even most young ministers, but it's certainly true of some. Here's the deal. You don't go to a church to pastor it to get experience on your resume so you can um, advance your career ladder. You go to a church to love people that God makes you responsible for spiritually and to make not your name great, but Christ's name great. I have never called Mount Zion my first church. This is my church. I'm here as long as God allows me to be here. I was on the phone with my dad this week, and um, he said, so when are y'all going to move back up here to Kentucky? And I said, I mean, we're, we're not moving back. And he's like, you're going to be at that church forever? And I said, well, I'm not planning on leaving anytime soon. Lord willing, I'm looking forward to officiating the wedding ceremonies of babies that I have dedicated at this church. There's something truly special about that that you don't get being at a different church every four years. I have no ambitions to become a megachurch pastor because there's no glory in the size of your church. And my goal is not to make my name great. There's a preacher in history known as Count Zinzendorf. That's a cool name. Um, he, he got to be remembered in history just because of his name. Count Zinzendorf said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And that's the life of most ministers. The gospel lives on. You won't be remembered beyond your grandkids. God grants about 10 preachers every 100 years to be remembered in history, and the rest of us will die and be forgotten. God's glory is seen in using small things like infants to shame the enemy and the avenger. He does this because his power can be seen there. When David killed Goliath with a stone, it's only because God's power was at work in him. That shouldn't have happened. You don't throw a little rock into somebody, into a giant's head, and that takes him down normally. But if God shows his power, it can take even just a little marble and do it. 
God's glory is seen in mankind way more than in the moon and the stars. God's glory, you notice the the progression here in verses 1 through 4, God's glory is above the heavens, and David looks at the heavens and wonders, what is man that you're mindful of him? Because clearly, if we're looking at great, awesome things, well, uh, the, the skyline at night is way more impressive than any one of us. Man is lower than that, he says, and you are mindful of him. You, 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 have, um, you, you care for him, he says. Why do you do that? But, but you do. The one who displays God's glory is, is us. We're, we're the ones that are just a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned with glory and honor, and we are displaying his glory to the world. We are created in God's image. We're made in his image. Mankind is crowned with that glory and honor. That's the difference. That's the difference in man and the moon and the stars, is that we're crowned with God's image and the moon and the stars are not. We are created in his image. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. You know it, I'm sure. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What does this mean that we're made in God's image? Well, many things, but primarily it's reflecting on what cultures would do at the time. Um, If a king was in power, what would he do? He would set up statues of himself around the city and he would, that would be his image to the people to see him. And we're better than that. We are bearers of God's glory all over the earth. He's the king in his, on his throne, and we bear his image all over the earth. We are his representatives on earth. You are God's representative everywhere you go as his image bearer. We're to be worshipers of the God who made us, reflecting his glory back to him. God did not give that privilege to stars or redwood trees or mountains He gave it to mankind. Mankind is the crown jewel of his creation. God has a special glory within mankind that is not in everything else. The truest thing about you is that you are made in God's image to reflect his beauty and glory in the world as a worshiper. Now, our world is trying to get us to rebel against that. They're trying to steal that from us. Our culture is trying to do everything they can to get us to reject that birthright. You read Genesis 1 and 2, and you see the foundation of so many things that are true of us that the world tries to get us to turn our backs on. Whether it's it's personhood or marriage or family or um, work or um, being present in a place. Why do they do that? Well, if you're a peasant in a kingdom and you hate your king, but you have no power to go overthrow that king, what do you do? You go around the village destroying any image of him and defacing his reputation around the village. In Genesis 1, the image of God is the establishment of all of these things about us. All of those things are under assault in our world. 
Oh, they'll tell you that you're awesome and beautiful, but they do that so that they might prop you up and not God. They deny God's, they, they deny God's glory visible in us, and they reject God's creation of us, and everything in Genesis 1 and 2 is being assaulted. So think about those things. Think about marriage being assaulted. God's design for marriage is one man and one woman for life. This is not the case with many of the marriages in our society. Of course, the first one you think of is homosexual marriage. And yes, we would absolutely say that's not God's design. America may have made it legal, but that doesn't mean God blesses it. But there's many more than that. There's divorce. God's design for marriage is to stay with it until the end. There's a couple biblical allowances to um, break off from that, but God's primary purpose is for us to stay together, and, and, that, and that's what he calls. Or there's open marriages, open marriages. You may not know what that is. It's where you are married on paper, but the spouses have an agreement that they can go to bed with other people if they want. Polygamy is not legal in the United States, but there's, there's no law that says open marriages can't be the case, and that's a rejection of God's design for marriage. Or you have what I would call passive masculinity. Men, you're the head of your home, and you're called to lead your home with humility and Christ-likeness, working for the physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being of your, life, of your wife and children. And every man has fallen short of that. But men, when we don't take that up, when we refuse to lead our home, when we just kick back and watch TV while we let our wife do everything, we're rejecting God's design for marriage. Or the final one, cohabitation. Not marriage, just living like you're married when you're not. It's incredibly prevalent today. Most people today, unless they're not sold out followers of Jesus, live together before marriage, if they get married at all. And that's a rejection of God's design for marriage. God calls you to marry someone before you have a sleepover with them. Connected to marriage um, is gender roles. And you may believe this one because of cliches. The cliche that um, anything a man can do, a woman can do. I agree with that to an extent. I agree that a woman can get an education and work a job and be even a CEO of a company. Um, I believe that women shouldn't be paid less than men and they should have equal rights to, to, uh, to men. But God has given certain roles in creation to man and certain roles to women. Certain roles to man, certain roles to women. Men are to be the head of the home. They're to take up that mantle and do that well. And the reason that that's so rejected in our society is because men don't do that, because they fail to do that. Vice versa, a man can't have a baby and be a mother. And you might think that's, that's a dumb thing for you to say, but um, as a parent, trust me, there's a special relationship the mom gets with the child that the dad doesn't get. I can be doing everything to show my son love, and he's just not having it, and Adrian can walk in the room, and he runs to her and stops crying. It's this weird curse that men have that women, don't get to ha that women have that ability that men don't have. God has set these things up, and when we reject them, we're rejecting his image in us that he's created. Or you have work. You have work. The, the lack of work ethic today is a rejection of God's creation. God made man to work in the garden. You see it there. You saw it in Genesis 1 that you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put everything under his feet. Um, he put Adam in the garden. He said, do this. Um, take care of this garden. Keep it well and do it. God made man in the garden to work. 
And many of you are frustrated with the lack of hard work today. And I agree with you. But I would caution you not to think someone isn't a hard worker just because they don't labor out in the hot sun all day. Um, I do very little manual labor, because, um, but, but I do a lot of mental work. There's physical work and there's mental work. A lot of jobs today are mentally taxing in the way that other jobs are physically taxing. Um, that's how many jobs are. But it's still true that worth, work ethic in our country is way down, and that's rebellion against our creator who made us to work. Or you have what's called the metaverse. It's just referring to social media. The overuse of technology and social media, it's an easy way to reject how you were created. You were created to be in a specific place with, with the people there, and the, the, the screens and social media that we're so in um, blind us to make us think we can be in other places at those times, and we're not. No, we have been made in his image. We are royalty. We're royalty. I could go on more ways we reject our creator, but it's sin's desire for us to throw aside our birthright. We are God's glorious creation. There's no creation like mankind in all the universe. We are the ones crowned with glory and honor. We are literally royalty. I like to study my family history. It's kind of a hobby of mine. Um, I've built my family tree online, um, and, and I go and work on it from time to time. Um, a few years ago, I set out to, to take it back as far as I could go, as far as the records would let me go, um, specifically my father's 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 father, my patriarchal line all the way back. And I got back to about the 1400s, um, got out of the United States, um, found that my direct father's line is from Scotland. Um, and in Scotland, I come from a clan of lords called the Fraser clan. That's where my last name came from. I told my dad about that, and um, in all of his Kentucky redneck twang, he said, I knew it, I'm royalty. <laughs> but the fact is, it doesn't matter that you're born into a royal family or not. Um, you, you're royalty because you're created by the king of glory, and you reflect his glory to the world. Everyone on this planet is created with that glory in them. Sir, your wife is a queen created by God. Do you treat her like one? Ma'am, your husband is a king created by God. Do you honor him as one? Your children are royalty. Do you treat them like that? Or are they just an annoyance in your life? Understand you're forming souls when you're parenting. You're not trying to just grow citizens up and get them out of your house. You're, you're, you're forming souls in people. People in this world spend all their time trying to chase fame and fortune, and they don't even realize they have greater glory in them as God's image bearers than they could ever achieve on earth. Every man, woman, and child that you interact with today has the glory of God inside of them as image bearers. So all life is valuable. All life is valuable. We treat all life as precious. To demean human life is to demean the image of God. It's why the majority of, if not every culture in the world, has murder as one of their top crimes. It's destroying the image of God. Some of the biggest examples of evil in history have begun their work by defacing the image of God. An old Nazi pamphlet said, the Jews only look human with a human face, but his spirit is lower than that of an animal. He's an unparalleled evil monster and subhuman. Some of the KKK literature would reduce African-American people down to gorillas. If 
you want to ostracize or even exterminate a group of people, you start by stealing the image of God from them and convincing the world that they're subhuman. Because if they don't have God's image in them, well, it's no different killing them than killing a squirrel in your tree. This is why we advocate for the unborn. In America, the womb of a woman can be one of the most dangerous places to be. Sometime this month, I prayed for it earlier, the Supreme Court is expected to release a decision on a significant court case that could potentially overturn Roe versus Wade, the uh, court case that federally legalized abortion. Essentially, what that would mean is that abortion is no longer a federal right, it's a state-by-state -state choice. So Georgia can choose not to make it legal, but California can choose to have it legal. It's a state-by-state -state thing. We pray Roe versus Wade is overturned, we also pray that the heart of our nation would turn to God and that, um, and that they would stop rejecting their creator and his creative work in the womb of a woman. Because understand, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, we're going to have to be ready. We're going to have to be ready. We don't just cheer that no longer abortion is legal everywhere. The heart of our nation will not change because a law is passed. So women are still not going to want their babies. Are we going to step up and take care of unwanted children? In the first century... The Romans would throw unwanted babies out in the street to die. And it was the Christians who took those babies in and raised them. Are we ready to do such a thing? I hope so, because those children bear the holy image of our creator. Because of the image of God, we seek to have a right perspective and right action on the issue of race. The issue of race has been a hot topic in America, especially in the last two years, and there's kind of two wrong perspectives on it. There's the first one that if you are white, you need to repent of being white. We need to rewrite history and erase all the people in history who were oppressors. We need to pay reparations to the great-great-grandchildren of slaves. Um, we, we would say that one's wrong. And then the other side of the spectrum, that there's, there's no racism in America anymore because blacks can vote now. And all of us in here are going to be tempted more toward that one but they're both wrong. Just like with abortion, the heart of a nation doesn't change because laws are passed. Racism did not end with civil rights. Yeah, you have very little racism if you run into an African-American person at Walmart because they're on your turf. A few weeks ago, I was in Ohio, and um, I was there for a wedding. I was a groomsman in the wedding, and um, the best man booked an Airbnb. If you don't know what an Airbnb is, it's a rental house. And he booked it, and when you, when you book it, it doesn't tell you where, like, is it a good neighborhood or a bad neighborhood. So he booked it at a really good rate. Each of us had to pay $84 to stay there for three days. And, um, and one day we were going out for lunch as the, as the group of grooms. I had, a, I had a rental car, and I took the opposite way out of the, out of the house. Then we had come in, and I pulled up to the stop sign, and I looked down the road, and I was like, oh, boy, this is a bad part of town. Because it, it was very run down. It honestly looked like a bomb had gone off. And just people were walking around everywhere like, like a bomb had just gone off. And they were cleaning up the, 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 the debris. And it was primarily African-American people. And I, I started to get a little nervous. Oh, no, I'm not safe. Why did I think that? Because I, like all of us, struggle a little bit with that sin. Would I have thought the same thing if they were all white people? I had to repent in that moment. I had to change my perspective. That is a rundown neighborhood of image bearers of God right there. That's what I had to tell myself because that's the truest thing about them according to Psalm 8. 
because of the image of God, we respond appropriately to the issue of sexual abuse in our day. A couple weeks ago, I, I prayed about it last week. I, I wanted to comment more on it this week when, when kids were out for, ki- for children's church. Um, a report was released in the Southern Baptist Convention a couple weeks ago, and there have been um, basically hundreds of issues of sexual abuse in SBC, church, SBC churches in the past 30 years. And it was in the hands of the SBC higher-ups to handle it. And when, um, when nothing was getting done, the messengers of the SBC a couple of years ago voted to form a task force of lay people to investigate it and figure out what was going on. And what they found was shocking. Over 700 cases of sexual abuse within Southern Baptist churches. A 288-page report came out indicting many of the higher-ups in the SBC as being either sexual abusers or having helped cover up the sexual abuse. It's apparently not the Southern Baptist Convention, it's the Southern Baptist Mafia. All the higher-ups in the SBC who opposed this cover-up were just deemed liberal, woke Marxists. Because if you want to get anybody to not listen to you in the Southern Baptist Convention, you just make sure everyone knows they're a liberal and they hate America. When asked why they had never dealt with this, they said, we don't have time to worry about sexual abuse. It takes away from time for evangelism. Okay, what about the sexual abuse victims who aren't saved? In other words, we don't want to worry about the restorative power of the gospel in the lives of sexual abuse survivors. We just want to make sure we get as many people as possible to sign a card so we can add them to our list and tout how awesome our denomination is. Look at how many numbers we have. It's unacceptable, and it's rebellion against our creator who put his image inside those abuse survivors who the SBC leaders pushed aside. Human beings are crowned with glory and honor, so all life is valuable and precious. So part of being made, verses 6 through 9, 6 through 8 actually, part of being made in God's image is that he sets us in charge of the world. He sets us in charge of the world. God is the ultimate king of the world. It's the works of his hand, verse 6. He's the one who did it all, but he took Adam and he put him in the garden to work it and keep it. It was God's garden. Adam was appointed as something like an ambassador to take care of it. And that is what he's done to all of us. We are to keep the garden that we have been entrusted to. Actually, most of us have multiple gardens. Your family would be a garden. You cultivate your marriage, you cultivate the lives of your children and grandchildren, you're working on that. Your job is a garden. Some of you work in a job similar to gardening. Uh, Many of you do. I hope this brings you new purpose to what you do. You aren't just doing meaningless work that that doesn't matter to God. You're doing the very thing he put Adam in the garden to do. But whether you're a farmer or you work in an office, Whatever you do, you're taking care of the garden you were put in charge of. This church is a garden, and you have your responsibilities here to cultivate it, and I have my responsibilities here to cultivate it. It's like a garden, and we're to keep it flourishing. We're to cut back weeds, and we're to cultivate flowers and fruit and keep it going and keep it thriving. Wherever your garden is, your job is to have dominion over it and care for it. But who among us has not failed to care for our garden? Who among us has not failed to have dominion over the works of his hands? Who among us can say that we've been the perfect husband or wife? That we have always been 100% faithful at work? 
that we have loved this church completely well, that we have taken care of our body completely as we should have, that we have taken care of the earth completely as we should have. Who among us has not failed time and time again? You see, the great paradox of Christianity is that mankind is completely valuable and, and glorious with the image of God in us, yet we're also completely wretched and deplorable in our constant desire to disobey and rebel against the God who made us and how he made us. Because life is precious, God was not willing that life be discarded, even though all have sinned. So what did he do? God came and dwelled among us. He fulfilled Psalm 8. He came as a man. He came as one who was made a little lower than the heavens and crowned with glory and honor. Um, it, you should go and read Hebrews 2 later. I'm going to quote a verse of it later. Hebrews 2 quotes Psalm 8 and applies it to Jesus. Jesus didn't come as a superman. He didn't come as like a, a magic being able to do more than the average man could do. He had his divine nature. He had his human nature. His human nature was completely normal and everyday. He took on a human nature that he might live the life that we have just like us. He would get thirsty. He would get hungry. He would get tired. He, um, he had to um, sleep and rest and, and do all of those things that we have to do. Yet, he did not fall short as we did. Hebrews 2.9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone because we all fall short and we're all going to die. But Jesus came and became just like us that he might taste death for us so that we might not have to suffer in death forever. Colossians 1.15, I read it to start out, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus became a human and the image of God so that he might fix the broken image of the image bearers. We have all fallen short of Psalm 8, and Jesus has come to rescue us from that. And Scripture says that if we're born again, he's, he actually has begun the process of restoring that image within us. 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to the next. So it's like a, it's, it's like a um, thermometer in one degree and one degree and one degree until we reach complete mature stature of Christ. I hope your value and your the glory within you as an image bearer is seen here in Psalm 8. I hope you see that you have that great value. Ladies, you can reject the lies the world tells you that how valuable you are is found how flawless your face is and how curved your hips are. That's a lie. You have the image of God in you. Men, you can reject that lie that, that you believe that about yourself, that how valuable you are is found in your accomplishments. It's not true. The image of God is within you. The one whose glory is far above the heavens has put his glory in you who has been just put just a little lower than the heavenly beings. But I also hope you see how broken that image he put in you is. It's why you continually doubt yourself. It's why you can't shake whatever struggle you have. It's why you are never satisfied with your life and always feel like you need more. It's why you are angry, fearful, or stubborn. So the Son of Man came and lived just as we do. He became a little lower than the heavenly beings 
crowned with glory and honor. He lived in our stead, he died in our stead, and he's been raised in our stead. That if we repent of our sins and believe in him, we can begin to have that broken image in us mended and made new. Have you done that? If you haven't, would you repent and believe today? Don't you know there's great value and glory within you, you who are a little lower than the heavenly beings? Embrace that and live showing the majestic name of our Lord in all the earth. And may verse 1 and verse 9 be true of your life. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That bookends Psalm 8. May that bookend your life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have created us in such a way that we are your treasured possession. We are crowned with glory and honor. We are, um, we, we are um, the image bearers of God here on this earth. That means our lives are valuable, and the lives of every person we're going to run into today is valuable, Lord. The, the lives of those that we don't like are valuable. The lives of the people that we love are valuable. We're all your image bearers. You have crowned us with glory and honor. Yet what in the world could that possibly mean about who you are when you compare us to the moon and the stars? It shows that your strength is found in weakness. And so, Lord, show your strength in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.